Our text this morning will be Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we ask that you would bless us through the means of your word. We pray, O Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that our eyes would be enlightened, that our hearts would be softened to hear your word, that we might know more of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this in great confidence, for we know that you have given to us your word. You have given it to us, that we might know who you are and what duty you require of us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We come now this morning to the very end of Romans chapter 8. We've been saying that Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, it has often been called. This perhaps might be the greatest passage in the greatest chapter of the Bible. It is the capstone to chapter 8. Paul has been building up to this point. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, he told us who we are in Christ. And then from verses 12 to 27... He told us what that means for how we should live our lives in Christ. And then in verses 28 through 30, we saw how he showed God's plan for all of us in the midst of this. Now, we could say that not only is this a summary of this chapter, we could say that this passage is a summary of the entirety of the book up until this point. 
This passage is actually the answer to the problem that Paul told us about back in chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. That is, how an unrighteous man could stand before a righteous God. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things from this passage. Three things about God. Not three things about us, but three things about God that we need to know for ourselves. First, that God is for us. Paul tells us that God is for us. He is not against us, but rather, God is on our side. He is for us. Second, that God has justified us. That we are made right with God, not because of something we have done, but because God has done it for us. God has justified us. And then finally, that God has established us. That in the work of Jesus Christ, we are not only redeemed, but we are established by God Himself. God is for us, God has justified us, and God has established us. Well, as we come to this passage, it begins with a question. Paul says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? And we've seen this before. This is Paul's way of beginning to answer objections. And so he's going to tell us that God is for us, and the way that he's going about doing this is to show us the fact of our redemption. Paul has done this twice earlier in the book of Romans, and he does it here. He asks a question because he knows somebody is getting ready to raise an objection, and he wants to undercut the objections. You may recall that after Paul talked about justification by faith in chapter 3, he anticipated that someone of the Jews would say, well, but what about Abraham? Abraham was justified by his works, wasn't he? So why can't we be justified by our works? So Paul begins chapter 4 by saying, What then shall we say our father Abraham received? And he begins to show that Abraham was also justified by faith. In chapter 5, Paul emphasized that we're saved by the free grace of God in Christ. And he was anticipating someone objecting by saying, Well, if grace is free... And if grace is greater than sin, we should sin all the more, so that we have all the more grace. And so at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says once again, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Certainly not. And now, Paul has been giving comfort to us as we face trials and suffering. And so he is about to answer the objection. Well, Paul, but what about this? Surely there's something you haven't thought of, Paul. What if I raise this objection? What about this trial? What about this tribulation? What do I do? And Paul's answer is plain and direct. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this answer that Paul gives is sweeping and absolute in its scope. There is nothing, Paul says, that can be against us, if God is for us. Now, Paul is not denying that there is opposition. He's not saying, if God is for us, there's nothing 
that exists that opposes us. Because after all, Paul has been describing suffering for the Christian. And he will go on in just a few verses in verse 35 to talk about violent opposition, persecution, hunger, the sword. And then in verse 39, he's going to say there's even opposition that is supernatural beyond this world. What Paul is saying here is that the opposition is not even worth considering if God is for us. He's saying it's not worth considering because God is for us. And the if here that Paul uses is not an expression of uncertainty. Oh, I wonder if God will be for us. No, this is an if of presupposition. We might even translate it since. Since God is for us, who could be against us? There is no doubt in Paul's mind here. It is actually the basis of Paul's confidence for the next phrase, who could be against us? Now this falls exactly on with what Paul was saying in verse 28. He said that nothing is really against us to work ultimately for our evil. Because God is at work bringing all things together for our good. Now this follows the same line of thinking. It is not that all things are good, but that God works the good and the bad for our ultimate good. So, it's not that there is no opposition, but what is that opposition compared to God? What effect can it have on us if God is using that opposition under His control and is working it together for our ultimate good? So someone might next ask at this point, well, how do I know that God is for me? Now, the Bible is full of accounts of believers putting aside all danger and all opposition because they trust God. You remember the famous 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The psalmist writes, In Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So the question comes, how can I have this confidence? How can I know that God is for me in the same way that David knew God was for him? Well, Paul does something interesting here. He does not appeal to your emotions. He doesn't tell you about God's love and how that makes you feel. He could have done that because God's love is real, but he doesn't do it. Often that is how we deal within our own families. If someone is not assured that we love them, we sit them down and we tell them how much we love them and how deep our love for them is and how we shower our affection upon them. But that's not what Paul does here. Instead... He shows you God's love by giving you the fact of what God has done for you. That He has redeemed you. If we look at verse 32, verse 32 is the proof of verse 31. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? 
You see, we know that God is for us because He worked for our redemption. Our redemption begins with the Father's love. One problem we have with assurance is that we have a faulty view of redemption. Sometimes we look at it as if Jesus has to convince a grudging, harsh Father to justify sinners. Only because Jesus has earned it. It's as if the Father doesn't want to justify sinners. But he looks at Jesus and he says, well, I guess I have to. You've done all the work, so I have to forgive these sinners. When we look at it this way, the Father is a stern and unforgiving figure. We cannot trust him. We don't see his love for us. We see it in Jesus, but it is hidden in the Father. But the reality is that the Father is the one who loved first. Jesus came to redeem us because the Father sent him. Think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. We are redeemed because of what the Father put in motion. He did not spare His Son. He gave Him up for us. The Father is so for you that He sent His only begotten Son with whom He had unbroken communion from all eternity to suffer and die for you. The Father did not have to be tricked. He did not have to be convinced. It was his plan. He put it in motion. He made sure at every point that it was fulfilled. You know that God loves you because of the fact of your redemption. But there is more than just the fact of redemption. Paul is now going to argue from the greater to the lesser. He's going to talk about the cost of our redemption. Now remember, the whole context of this text is about how we can deal with trials and struggles. Paul said that God works all things together for our good. Now, how do I know that? Because if God has done the greatest thing for me, how could He not do lesser things for me? Redemption was not some easy, half-hearted matter. No, God gave up His Son. His Son. Think about what that means. When Paul uses this phrase, His own Son, he is being very specific. He is drawing a distinction between the eternal, divine, unique Son and all of God's adopted sons. That reminds us that the redemption required the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God Himself. For God to redeem you, He had to send His Son, His perfect Son, God of very God, light of true light, to become man and suffer and die. The sacrifice of Jesus was without limit. It was a total sacrifice because that's what was necessary. God did not spare His own Son, Paul tells us. He did not limit the penalty in any way. Why? 
because that's what redemption required. Sin carries with it infinite guilt and punishment. And Jesus paid that price for you. There was no one else who could pay that debt. Think about the story of Abraham. Isaac was spared. Abraham did not plunge his knife into Isaac's chest. Why? Because the Lord provided a sacrifice. The Lord provided the ram to be the sacrifice. Abraham understood this. When Isaac asked him, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, my son, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. But here there is no one else who can be substituted. It is only the Lord. He provides and he does not spare his son because that was what was required to redeem sinners. It's not just that he's not spared, however. It's also, Paul says, that he was delivered up. Now, where the previous statement was negative, God did not intervene. He did not spare his son from the punishment. Here there is even more emphasis. It is a positive statement. It's that he intentionally delivered the son up so that you would be redeemed. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might be the righteousness of God in Christ. If the father has done all of that, how could he possibly not override the things of this earth? and the events of life for your good. He's already shown you how much He loves you. He has shown how far He's willing to go. Now imagine this. If someone came up to you and was willing and gave you a billion dollars, why would you possibly be concerned that He would withhold a dollar? It just makes no sense. God is for us. Then in verse 33, Paul brings another question. He says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is it that can condemn you? Paul is asking this question to tell us that God has justified us. He's not only for us, but he has justified us. And these are important questions for us as we struggle with assurance. We can believe that God has saved us. And we can still be afraid that something will come up that will tear us away from God. You've heard stories like this, haven't you, where someone who's a criminal flees from the law and from justice, and he hides himself away somewhere, and he gets married, and he has children, and he's a model citizen, And he does everything in accordance with the way people should with the law. He leaves behind that other life. But he lives in constant terror that someone will come and make the accusation of who he was. And that once that accusation is made, he will be dragged off to justice. Ripped away from his family. Ripped out of the life that he knows. We can think that way. We can think God has forgiven me. But what if they find out who I really am? What if people know really how bad a sinner I am? What if my guard falls down? 
What if an old acquaintance comes to church? What if he tells stories of what I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago? What could I possibly do? Won't everyone reject me? Wouldn't perhaps even God himself reject me? Now this is also rooted in a misguided view of the atonement. Sometimes we think about the atonement in this fashion, as if it's a courtroom in which the father sits in the seat of the judge. And Satan comes and makes accusations against us. And Jesus defends us against the accusations of Satan. And God looks out and he says, My judgment is that Jesus wins the case. He has defended you. I declare you not guilty. The problem with this view is, what if more evidence is brought up? Wouldn't the case be opened up again? Wouldn't the judge have to do that for justice? Wouldn't he have to say, well, we need to dig more down into this? Maybe this time what will happen is the father won't acquit me. Maybe the accusations will be more that can be borne. This comes to us because if we're honest, our consciences accuse us all the time. Because we do sin. And the enemy uses that to further accuse us. He is the great accuser. He actually tries to use your spiritual awareness and understanding of God's character and God's law against you. The more aware you are of who God is and of how holy God is, the more Satan brings that to bear against you as an accusation. And so Paul answers this question directly. He says, it is God who justifies. Now what does that mean? It means that God is more than a judge. He is the judge, but it doesn't stop there. He is also the justifier. He is the one who acquits you. He speaks on your behalf and he dismisses all of the charges. In the courtroom of God, the deck is stacked against Satan. It's like this. Do you remember the scene from the movie The Untouchables? Where Al Capone is on trial and the prosecutors are trying to convict him. And they're getting absolutely no traction with the judge. Every motion they make is denied. The evidence they want to admit is excluded. And they quickly determine that the deck is stacked against them. That the judge is for Al Capone. That they're not going to get a fair hearing. There's a sense in which that's what the courtroom of God is like. Not for the sake of injustice, but for the sake of justice. The penalty has already been paid. The debt is no longer owed. The Father will not even listen to any more accusations against you. He is not just the judge. He is the one who justifies you. And that's an important distinction. It's also important because God is the one who is best suited to dismiss all of the charges against you. After all, He's the one against whom all offenses come. All sin is primarily rebellion against God. David reminds us of this in Psalm 51. After he sinned against Bathsheba and sinned against Uriah, 
He cries out and he says, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. God also knows the law more perfectly than any accuser possibly could. We might think that Satan would come up with some event that has gotten missed. Or some section of God's law that we didn't know that was there. We might wake up in a cold sweat thinking we're going to be accused of violating 3 Chronicles 12.8. We don't even know where it is. But think about this for a minute. Who knows God's law better than God's law? Better than God does. How could anything escape the notice of God? He sees all things. How could Satan bring up something that God does not already know? You see, God knows the law and our actions more perfectly than any accuser could possibly bring to bear. God is also the one who has satisfied all the claims of sin against us in the work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing left for us to do. Nothing depends on us. God has satisfied all the claims of sin. No one can bring a charge against us. But then we see that the work of Jesus itself is also the guarantee of our redemption. It is proof that God has justified us. And so Paul then turns to describe this work. He asks, who is to condemn? Now before you answer that, let me remind you of something. Let me remind you that Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Before you can answer who can condemn, let me remind you of what Jesus has done. And so there are four things that Paul wants us to see in the work of Jesus, each assuring us that God has justified us and that we cannot be condemned. The first is that Jesus has died for you, a sinner. Now remember, Paul is summarizing here. He doesn't go back in detail over the death of Jesus Christ. He's already done that throughout all of the book. But he does bring to your mind the great cost of redemption. It took the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, to redeem you. Christian, Your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has secured satisfaction for your sins before God. The justice of God was satisfied in the penalty that Christ paid. The wrath of God is satisfied. Nothing remains to be brought against you. You cannot be condemned. The second thing that Paul mentions is that Jesus is raised for you, a sinner. There's more, Paul says. Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul knows that there's more because he says exactly that. He says, even more, or especially, even beyond the death of Christ, Christ is raised. Now, the resurrection is a fundamental part of the work of Christ. Jesus did say, it is finished on the cross. But the resurrection is the vindication of that work upon the cross. 
It shows that Jesus was indeed God. That he did pay all the price. That death could not hold him. That all our sins have been forgiven. Jesus is alive and he secures his people. That means every single person who has believed on him. But Paul is not finished yet. Now he turns to the present ascended Christ. He says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Not only are we guaranteed our redemption by Christ's death, not only is it secured by his resurrection, but we also have the guarantee that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God. This shows the power and the sovereignty that has been given to Jesus Christ. He is sovereign over all things for you. Lastly, Paul makes a final point. He says that Jesus now intercedes for you. Now, this goes beyond defending the believer before the Father. When we hear of Jesus' intercession here, we should not get the idea that every time we sin, Jesus stands before the Father and says, Okay, you need to forgive this sin. Remember, next time, we need to forgive the sin again. Like he has to argue for us and defend for us. Because after all, Jesus has already done that once and forever on the cross. All of our sins are forgiven when we place our faith and trust in him. This is not about Jesus explaining away our sins before God. I think instead this speaks directly to God working all things together for our good. Jesus intercedes for his people in much the same way that he intercedes in John chapter 17. He prays for you that you would be blessed. He prays for you that you would know the true comfort of salvation. That you would be free from grief. That you would be filled with hope. That's the intercession of Jesus Christ for you. For your good. God is for us. God has justified us. And then Paul proceeds now to a final line of questioning. That God has established us. Nothing stands in our way because of the work of Jesus. Paul had already asked us, who could bring a charge against us if God is for us? He asked, who could condemn us when God is the one who justifies? And now he asks, what could separate us from the love of Christ? Now this last question deals with a different perspective on the same truth. The second set of questions dealt with the judicial aspect of our redemption. The courtroom, a judicial judgment that we are not guilty. That is, no one could bring a charge against you because you've become acquitted. You are declared not guilty. The penalty has been paid. Glory, hallelujah. But now, Paul brings up the relational aspect of our redemption. And this is important. It's not just that we're declared not guilty. We are also brought into the family of God. God doesn't just free us from sin and guilt. He brings us into his family. He makes us his children. 
So Paul asks, are you worried that God would cease to love you? Specifically, do you think there's something that can separate you from Christ's love for you? The question itself is actually one of comfort and assurance. Now notice what Paul asks. He doesn't ask about your love for Christ. He asks about Christ's love for you. That's what he focuses upon. It's not that you need to hold on to Jesus, but that Jesus holds on to you. You know what this looks like. You've been out in public and seen a young child of four or five or six hold his father's hand. Now, how does hand-holding work in that context? Does it depend upon the child to keep the grip upon the father? Otherwise, they'll be swept away? No, as a matter of fact, that kind of hand-holding doesn't even occur with the mere interlocking of fingers. Usually, the father will swallow up the entirety of the child's hand and will have a grip not only on the hand, but sometimes the wrist, sometimes the whole forearm of the child. There is no way the child is getting away from the father. As a matter of fact, the child can let go completely, and they're still holding hands. That's a picture of this. Our security is in God's love. Because there's nothing that can interrupt it. There's nothing that can defeat it. And we need to hear this because there are strong pressures in our life and in our world today that can block our view of God and His love for us. Today is a rather overcast day. Does that mean that the sun ceases to exist? Or does that mean that the sun ceases to give light or heat? I don't know about you, but when I was out earlier, it was not 200 degrees below zero. We did not become an ice cube. It's overcast, but it's not pitch dark, is it? The sun is hidden from us by something intervening. But that doesn't mean the sun isn't there and isn't doing exactly what it was doing when we could see it. In the same way, there are things in our lives that can come between us and the love of God. Our seeing the love of God. And what Paul tells us is, even though they may cloud our view, they don't change anything essentially. They cannot interrupt the love of God. They cannot stop the love of God. They cannot break the love of God. And he starts, and is comprehensive in his terms, he starts with external pressures. Ones that come from outside of us. He talks about tribulation. This word has at its core the idea of being pressed down. Outside pressures that come upon us when we feel like we're being squeezed. Paul says that can't separate you from the love of God. And then he moves on to internal pressures. Distress. This word has as its idea of being in a tight and narrow place. The idea here, I think, is that sometimes we think... We've lost God's love because this is the place where we are in life. I'm not sure God loves me. My life is what it is. I go to the same job day after day, week after week. I'm not going to be a billionaire. I'm not going to own Amazon. 
I'm not going to be president of the United States. You know, people tell you you can be whatever you want to be. That ain't true. I can't make myself be Bill Gates. It's not going to happen. It can happen especially with young moms. They think, is this where I am now? Cleaning up spilt milk? Getting kids ready for bed? Doing laundry? I had such grand plans for me six, eight years ago. I'm in this place now. I didn't expect I'd be stuck here. And we think we're stuck because God doesn't love us. But the truth of it is that even when we find ourselves in narrow places where we wish we could spread out, where we wish we had more, God still sheds his love upon us. Paul then moves on to circumstances. He talks about persecution, which has at its root the idea of being relentlessly pursued. And this is actually the case for most of the world today. And it may be coming here soon. In days of discouragement, I will look at my children and say, there may come a day when your children or grandchildren may be lined up and shot for believing the Bible in America. But you know what? If that comes true, we still shouldn't worry. Because... That's the case for most of the world today. And there is no evidence that Jesus stops loving his people because of persecution. Paul then moves on and says he will not even allow supernatural things to separate us from the love of Christ. He gives four sets of pairs with two single items to make sure that he encompasses everything that anyone could think of. He says there's absolutely nothing that you could bring up and say, well, Paul, what about this? Paul says, I am sure, I am persuaded, I am convinced, I can't say it any stronger than this. I am sure that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not life and its struggles. Not death and its seeming unknown. Not even angels or devils if they tried. No dimension of time, neither the present nor the future. No dimension of space, neither depth nor height. Absolutely nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And the final thing we see is that it's not only that nothing stands in our way. The truth is that not only can we not be separated by any of these things, but that because of the love of Christ, we are more than conquerors in these things. Now the word that Paul uses here is interesting. More than conquerors is only one Greek word. It means super conquerors. And Paul made it up. He was trying to come up with a word. And we are conquerors wasn't enough for Paul. He says we are super conquerors. So why would Paul make this word up? What's he trying to say? Again, we have to remember the context. So much of what we experience can make us feel defeated. Think about the church in America today. We're not even experiencing all of what Paul is describing, and yet we feel defeated, don't we? We feel like we're losing. What we need to remember is that it's not something new, it's not something novel to experience these pressures. 
these tribulations, these persecutions. This is the lot of God's people throughout all of history. Actually, Paul, in his statement in verse 36, is quoting Psalm 44, verse 22. The persecution... For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Was as true in the days of Israel as it was in Paul's day, as it is today in Pakistan, in India, in the Sudan. It's the lot of God's people. And Paul is reminding us that even these bad, horrible things are a sign that we belong to Jesus. We are bearing His reproach. We are more than conquerors in what we are suffering. Do you want an example? How about Stephen in the book of Acts? Do you remember what happened to Stephen? Stephen preached and they didn't like what he was preaching. He preached faith in Jesus Christ and they stoned him. And the Bible specifically tells us that Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And then you remember Saul gets in a traveling party and he goes up to Damascus and the risen Jesus Christ comes to him and he says, Saul, Saul, why did you persecute Stephen? No, that's not what my Bible says. What my Bible says is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, when the people of God suffer, They suffer with their Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We might even put it this way. In our sufferings, we are closer to our Lord than ever before. Paul wants you to know that in every adversity, every difficulty, every pain, and every trial, what you have is an unqualified victory in Christ. He is calling you to believe this by faith. To trust Jesus. To rest in His love. Will you do that today? Will you be secure in the love of Christ? Because that is where you will find peace and hope. In the love of Christ. From which nothing can separate you. Let's pray.